Welcome to Intersect Where Church Meets Culture. I'm Josh Desch, the lead pastor at Northeast Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And I am joined as always by my wife, the convivial Betsy. Oh, convivial. I don't, think, I don't think I know what that means. I'm so happy to describe you this way. It means friend, friendly, lively, enjoyable. Oh, it's thank from you. the Latin convivium, which means banquet. Wow. Interesting. And Merriam Webster says it suggests a mood of full bellied joviality. <laughs> I do like to be full bellied, so <laughs> I guess that's I guess that fits. Anyway, you are delightful. And um, we have a delightful guest that I am excited to introduce our audience to today. He is the Reverend Dr. Greg Johnson. Greg, we are honored that you have joined us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. And Greg, you know I've got to do the customary bio so our audience knows who you are. So um, let me go ahead and first of all introduce the title for today's episode, and then I will introduce Greg more formally. The title for this episode is Singleness, Celibacy, and Christian Ministry. I'm really excited about this conversation. Let me say a few things about Greg. He is the lead pastor of Historic Memorial Presbyterian Church. That's a PCA church, just like any PC is a PCA church, in St. Louis, where he has served on the staff since 2003. He holds a PhD in historical theology with a concentration in American religion from St. Louis University and an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary, where I also received my Master of Divinity degree. And he's also the author of the book, Still Time to Care, what we can learn from the church's failed attempt to cure homosexuality that came out uh, from Zondervan. Uh, was that this year, Greg? It was or, December. December. Okay, cool. And I want to say, as a pastor in full-time ministry, uh, it's not too often that you find a pastor uh, in the trenches of full-time ministry who also has a PhD. That is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg, You are God has given you quite an intellect. And I wanted to give Greg one final plug on something a lot of people don't know about him or about what he's written. So for the, any of the pastors or people in ministry who listen to this podcast, Greg is also the author of a short article called Infant Baptism. He wrote it, he was telling us before we started recording, maybe 20 years ago, and as a PCA pastor in a Reformed Presbyterian church, this is the article I go to to convince all of the non-reformed people that God brings to PCA churches that they should strongly consider baptizing their covenant kids. And I have read B.B. Warfield, Francis Schaeffer, John Murray, and for a small treatment, Greg, you've written the best thing I've ever seen in under 2,000 <laughs> words, I would say. So um, find that article. You need to like tweet that again or something because mm-hmm. it's a gem, brother. Oh, thanks. Well, Greg, um, Josh and I both read your book, as Josh said, Still Time to Care, and um, we thank you for that. We both Mm -hmm. found it really educational and um, provocative and just so much to think about. So that uh, we both really enjoyed it. So as we get into our topic, um, can you tell our listening audience a brief version of your personal story? Um, How did you get to where you are today? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, my father was a senior executive in the federal government. I grew up in 
DC area. Um, he was an atheist and, um, I shared in that atheism kind of by default. Mm. Um, I, I didn't really think that, you know, there was some, you know, ancient near Eastern sky God up there somewhere pulling the strings, you know, uh, but, um, went through a real crisis of, of faith in my atheism in, in high school and began to really question it. And uh, I, I was questioning my atheism the way that, that Christians doubt their Christianity. I mean, I was just throwing everything at it and realizing oh. it was it did not give me any basis from which to say that anything is actually good or evil. Hmm. It, 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 you know, because we're all just, you know, time plus space plus chance. And there's no real way to distinguish between a head of cabbage and a, and a head of a a child, mm. uh, you know, because they're all just stuff that exists in a billion years from now, the, the stars will have gone out and none of us will have ever mattered. And, and so from that, I began to think that there had to be something. And I became a Christian in college. Um, I was, I was the gay kid growing up, um, was never sexually active because it was the height of the AIDS crisis. And I was terrified of dying. Um, and, uh, yet became a Christian in, in college and was baptized at age 20 in a PCA church. And a couple of years later, went off to seminary just to try to find out more about the Bible because I had never had any training. I had never had Sunday school or all the stuff that everybody else had. I had I'd devoured our church library. I mean, you know, anything that R.C. Sproul had written or J.I. Packer or, you know, Jerry Bridges and started working through the Puritan paperbacks and all of that so uh so yeah that's kind of my story and then uh went on and did a phd and have been pastoring at memorial uh for you know almost 20 years wow love that story love how you brought out that atheism requires faith too right it's not this um position of perfect certainty that sometimes I think it's presented in the culture. Mm-hmm. And also love, Greg, that you've been a part of a, of the Memorial family for how many total years? I mean, did you start attending that church shortly after moving to St. Louis? Yeah, I moved to St. Louis in 1994 as a 21-year-old right out of college to go to seminary. And I uh, checked out two other churches. Um, There's a lot of good ones in St. Oh, Louis. Yeah. There, are, there are a lot of good ones. I checked out one in West County, and it was just really clear that they had seminary professors teaching their their Sunday school classes, and and my home and my home pastor told me go to a place where it's not filled with seminary students. Go to a place where you'll actually get ministry experience. And at that point, Memorial had just been through a church split a few years earlier. There were very few young people at all, um, and they they needed me. I mean, I was within you know I had checked out Grace and Peace Fellowship, but Aegon Middleman, it's you know, celibate gay pastor had committed suicide, mm. like, mm-hmm. and he had never told anybody about his struggle with sexuality or with his struggle with mental illness. And that church was just grieving. And I was like, I am not going to find a mentor in this church because they're <laughs> questioning everything right now. Sure. So then I went to Memorial and uh, the second visit, I was asked to lead a singles ministry and then within a month, I was teaching adult ed as well. Um, and wow. uh, just, I, I was the worst singles minister in history. Um, <laughs> my, I just assumed that what single people really need is a 45-minute you know, lecture on sanctification <laughs> and uh, with lots of historical quotes. And uh, 
So it wasn't, yeah. it, it was not a meat market. I can say that, oh, but it goodness. was not a very good ministry. So no, it was a disaster, but yeah, so <laughs> I, I, but I have, I have been there for this, uh, this month marks 28 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was 21 when I arrived. And so, um, it has been great though. Like, you know, there's a young doctor, um, in my church who's, she's amazing. Um, and, uh, and I was there in the congregation when she was baptized as baby. And I was one of wow. the people saying, we will assist in nurture in, a, in, a, in the nurture of this child. And so, um, and, and now she's a doctor. So uh, it's, it's cool seeing people, you know, because I've been in the same church for almost three decades, you know, I can look at a, a child and somebody sees a child and I see a 25 year old who's divorce or who, who, who's, uh, you know, engagement was just called off and they're devastated. And then I've got 22 more years to get them ready for that so that they have enough of the gospel inside of them. Mm-hmm. They have enough confidence and freedom that they will be able to, to bear that suffering without being crushed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, it gives you a, when you're in one place for a long time and your church really is your family, it, it gives you a, a much longer view you know, you see somebody fall away and you just think, you know, this is the long game. This is the Lord's not done here. You know, I've, I've seen people come back. God does this. Uh, don't need to freak out. Just need to take your anxiety and throw it to Jesus. That's right. Turn, turn it into prayer. Amen. Amen. What a call to rootedness mm-hmm. that we need. Moving toward our topic, Greg, more proper here. Um, you know, I try to keep my ear to the ground about things that are being talked about in the evangelical reformed world. I know you do as well. And I have heard statements recently that sound concerned about people being in the ministry, specifically pastors who are single. I don't know if if you've caught on to that, but I have I've heard even some different quotes. Um, I won't say who I've heard these quotes from, but I've heard it said that it's unwise for a person to be in ministry who's same-sex attracted, even if the person is living a sexually pure life, even if the person has accountability, that it's unwise. And, you know, as I'm hearing this and I'm trying to, I really try to make an effort to be the most charitable hearer that I can be and, um, and, and hear what the concern is expressed there. I also think to myself some things like, well, Jesus was single, uh, I know we haven't forgotten that. And the apost- well, you're name dropping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you bet I am. But, you know, I could see somebody who would say, well, that's Jesus is God. So he's in a separate category all by himself. So really, but but you also have Paul. You have St. Augustine after his conversion. You have John Stott, like you write about in your book. And then you have 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 38, which I want to get to later in the podcast. But yeah. Greg... Have you heard some of these these sentiments of concern about singleness in the ministry? And we'll get in a, in a bit to what does celibacy mean? What does chastity mean? Is there a meaningful difference between these words? But um, have you heard a little bit of this concern? Because you, of course, are a single man in ministry. Yeah, you know, um, I, I have heard it, and it's— usually coming from a, a just genuine concern that, that people are thinking 
what they were like when they were young and unmarried and you know they're 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 wondering you know I, I think whether there's too much temptation if having a wife and kids uh makes you known to a degree that you're less likely to fall into sexual sin um you know, I, I think mm. that's probably where it's coming from um you know there's also an, an idolatry of the family that um a lot of people get upset when we talk about this, but you know, if you're a pastor and you've got families that aren't at church Sunday morning because they're at soccer, then you understand the idolatry of the family. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. putting the family before God, uh, and and I think everybody in ministry sees that when they watch people make choices that are very clearly, you know, prioritizing something. But uh, I, I have heard it, and I hear it even with the sexuality discussion um, because the PCA's always had same-sex attracted pastors from day one. Uh, it's had a lot of them. And uh, and yet what I sometimes hear is, you know, we're not trying to target somebody just because they struggle with same-sex attraction and are mortifying it and resisting that. And, uh, and usually what I'm really hearing between the lines is so long as they get married and have children. Yeah, which again, to go back to, um, well, really the scriptures, but also the example in the history of the church, that that's where it's challenging to reconcile those two things. And, you know, we could get into, is this a Protestant um, maybe overreaction to the history of the Catholic Church. But Greg, I want to share just a a couple more statements that I've heard. Here's a quote uh, from someone I've heard that I respect who said this, for Christians, our objective for biblical sexuality is not celibacy. Our objective is chastity. And I heard that statement and I thought to myself, well, okay, first of all, chastity, what Christian would disagree with that? That's the call to be obedient to the Bible's sexual ethic. But um, maybe you could illumine us, especially with you being such a great historian, which you demonstrate in your book. It's incredibly well-researched. What is the distinction here um, with the word celibacy? If you look up the word celibacy, if you do a very basic Google search, it simply refers to the state of being unmarried. And it refers to the voluntary state of being unmarried, but um, it doesn't necessarily refer to a Roman Catholic, I'm going to be a monk or a nun. So, Greg, could you illumine for us, um, what's your understanding of the difference between celibacy and chastity? Is celibacy something that is not appropriate for Christians um, who who have an evangelical uh, mindset? Could you help us with that? Yeah, well, you know, like like you said, the the basic difference between is is that chastity is being faithful. Uh, that means either being monogamous and faithful within a Christian marriage, or being sexually abstinent outside of marriage, whether you've been married in the past or not, whether you are a widower or you know, we're all called to chastity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, scripture. St. Paul says there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. And, uh, and he applies that universally to everybody. And, uh, and, and celibacy is the sense that one has of being called specifically to remain unmarried, to give up marriage for the sake of the kingdom. 
Mm. Um, and I, I prefer the term celibacy to singleness because people, Christians tend to use the term single to mean pre-married, mm. not mm-hmm. married yet. And, uh, and yet, you know, the Bible, I mean, and certainly elevates uh, 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 celibacy. You know, the Bible will get there later. But in First Corinthians seven, you can't preach that passage without believing that every kid in your youth group should be praying and openly asking God, God, are you going to call me to celibacy or to marriage? And mm-hmm. then have them stepping out and serving the Lord and see which way He takes them. You know, because it's it's something that that we're all called to consider. I mean, Jesus said of of giving up marriage for the sake of the kingdom. He said, the one who who can do this ought to do it. Meaning that's a command. If you can do this, you ought to. Um, you know, First Corinthians seven, Paul says, you know, the one who, the man who marries the virgin does well. The man who does not does better. Um, and you look historically. Um, now, in the early church, there was an overemphasis on celibacy that then got translated into Roman Catholic understandings of ordination, um, and and. That's, I think there's rightly a pushback within the Roman Catholic Church against mandatory celibacy for priests. I think it's a terrible idea yes. um, because, um, you know, it has to be a call from God. Um, but, uh, but I mean, historically, I mean, you look and the prophet Jeremiah was celibate. He never married. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were likely court eunuchs and never married. The prophetess Anna was briefly married very briefly, and then spent her entire life unmarried. Hmm. Um, the sisters Mary and Martha were single adults. Um, you know, um, the first Gentile convert was was an African eunuch in Acts 8, um, a man who had, had had his genitalia completely removed because he would have been a, a desert eunuch. And he's on his way back from, from you know, <laughs> he's on his way back from Jerusalem, uh, when, when he and he's reading Isaiah fifty three, when when he is confronted with with you know uh, a deacon, <laughs> mm. and and becomes a believer and and is baptized and and yet he couldn't have become a Jew if he wanted to. There would be nothing to circumcise, and he'd likely just been rejected in Jerusalem because he was going up to seek the Lord. Um, and, and he wouldn't have been allowed both as a Gentile, which would have been very obvious, and as one who had been mutilated. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating that the, first, that the father of the Gentile church was a single man, celibate, and sexually altered. You, hmm. know, uh, you know, he was a eunuch that had been made that way by men, as Jesus says. Um, an infertile single celibate person father of the gentile church only god would do that mm. you know that's the, mm. the last thing the jewish Sounds church like would have expected mm. very inclusive yeah. god uh any to, to all who were willing and uh, you know and you you look at um the history of the church and you know the history of the church so many of the leaders that we revere and study and learn from were themselves unmarried uh unmarried for life, um, you know, Saint Augustine was celibate. Jerome was celibate. John Chrysostom was celibate. 
Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great, the, the Cappadocian fathers, never married, and and their sister Macrina, who was respected in her own right as a theologian and Bible scholar, uh, and men and women both wrote to her. Um, she was also celibate voluntarily um, to devote her life to the study of Scripture. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, the 12th century visionary, was, was celibate. Um, even in the 20th century, you know, you've got Presbyterian pastor Clarence McCartney. You've got in Aberdeen, William Still, who were both celibate. Uh, you have C.S. Lewis for all but four years of his life. You've got Henry Nouwen, um, who many Reformed folks have benefited greatly from. Amazing author. Um, mm-hmm. You know, John Stott, who, I mean, he was called the Protestant Pope on his death by the BBC. Uh, he was celibate his entire life, um, uh, never dated. Um, you've got Dick Lucas, who's still going. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. Anglican leader. Uh, their mentor, Eric Nash, uh, never married. He was celibate, um, also a, a, an Anglican clergyman. Um, you've got you know missionaries like Amy Carmichael and uh, Grace Mullen and Gladys Aylward. Uh, um, you know you've got uh, well John Stott's historical mentor uh, was Charles Simeon, who who never married. He was celibate his entire life, hmm. and uh, and uh, you know and of course realized that to be a don to be like a doctor in, in a British university, you. you you had to be single, you know. That was the that was part of the job description, and to it would require one to, to leave that position to marry, hmm. um, because they wanted you to be fully present um, for for the Lord's work. Hmm. Yeah, that that is so helpful. All the names that you've mentioned, and I think Jay Gresham Machen was oh, yeah. also. Jay, yeah, and John Murray until. He until after he retired in his very elderly years and moved back to Scotland, he married briefly. But um, but yeah, they were best friends, two single men, best friends, giving their life to God and to developing men of God who would lead the church. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, Machen's, um, you know, Stonehouse's uh, Machen's uh, biographer Stonehouse talks about how Machen really preferred the company of other men he didn't seem to have much in terms of romantic interests he really loved studying scripture and he lived in community we forget this Hmm. he was not an unaccountable person out there alone he was living in in the dorm in the in the dorm on campus had his own apartment uh in in what now i think is machin hall and uh and so he was surrounded by future pastors future missionaries and fellow theologians and scholars all the time. Um, yeah, it's a really mm. beautiful picture of how to serve God as a single person in Christian community. Mm. I want to I want to get Betsy's voice in here. She's got a lot of great questions, but I, I want to ask uh, just a follow-up here. I want to say something here. So, Greg, it really, it seems like, and, you know, we say in the church world, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But I think, sadly, a lot of times we're of the world without actually being in the world. So we we look like the world, but we're not um, reaching out to others. And I, and I just wonder, with your description here, is it possible that 
in the evangelical broader American tradition that we've absorbed some of what the world would tell us about marriage and that you can't be whole if you're not married and the whole 40-year-old virgin kind of comedy that we that we uh, lift up in this country. And we've lost some of, or maybe a good bit of, the witness of Scripture as well as the witness of the church. Yeah, you know, we need to, we need to, do a movie called the 50 year old virgin and, 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 and I'll be happy to, to star in it. And uh, it'll be, it'll be a little different. Um, and it'll be a Christian film. So it'll have very high visual, uh, uh qualities, of but course. bad plot, the bad, bad plot development. But, uh, Greg, I'm going to advise uh, you not to do this, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Mm. It's very, very possible. You know, I mean, and, 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 Part of the beauty of of uh, a testimony like like mine and like so many siblings in Christ who are in the same place I am um, is that we're here through our lives to declare to the world that there are things more important than sex and relationships and mm. romance. Mm. You know, I I can give those up, not a problem. I can't give up friendship. I can't give up intimacy. I can't give up love. But there within the family of God, there are ways to experience all of those when the church is functioning as a family. Uh, and, uh, because you've got, I've got all these, I mean, I get, you know, I mean, I get father's day cards on father's day from people who I used to mentor, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful because Mm. I was a father to them. Well, um, one more, just one more question on this topic here, Greg. So we, we had our PCA general assembly, um, recently, and there was an overture passed, Greg, that um, I was not in favor of. It, it talked about people who claim to practice celibacy. Do, do you think, and I just, one final thing before we move to First Corinthians 7, is there a confusion about um, celibacy meaning this Roman Catholic thing? Do you think that's out there, that it some people are seeing it as a vow or something that people make that's that's parallel to a person becoming a monk or a nun? I imagine that is the case. Um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, but, but, you know, no, nobody in, in reform circles, I don't think is talking about vows of celibacy in the sense of some unbreakable thing. Um, you know, but, but it is a really beautiful thing to be able to offer your entire life to God exclusively. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in first Corinthians seven, you know, it's always the passage that, that gets skipped over or ha- explained away, but, but where he talks about how, you know, the, the single man, uh, pleases the Lord, but the married man has to please his wife as well. And, and a lot of Christians, chafe at that they're like that doesn't sound right like was that <laughs> so that you know i mean it it it, it 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 challenges their their belief in the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture you know it's like wait how is that possible and, <laughs> and yet and yet i talk to other pastors all the time who are constantly having to make choices between their family that needs them and their church that needs them mm-hmm. sure and yep. and that is every pastor's experience in, except for the ones who are 
unmarried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and yeah. uh, you know, we had at one point at Memorial, at one point we had um, two full-time pastors and neither of us was married. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean, we honestly had to go get counsel from all sorts of people. Like, is this going to be suicide? <laughs> like, are we shooting ourselves <laughs> in the foot? And, uh, but God blessed us and he gave us all sorts of new people and resources. And we were able to hire a full-time youth and family pastor now as well. So mm-hmm. God, and then, and then the other pastor got married and now has, has one kid and another on the way. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I've definitely seen how God can use if somebody offers it, uh, God can use the fewer hats in life to focus um, Absolutely. much more. Absolutely. And yet, so often, uh, Greg, it seems like the assumption is that singleness is a liability in ministry. It seems like that would be the default of most search committees, church sessions um, in in this broader American world that we swim in. Um, Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the the other pastor at Memorial who who was single, he had he had sent his resume to a church and uh, they asked for a photo of him and his family. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, well, I, I'm not married. And they responded just two words, don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> it's wow. like, okay, that's rough. Um, wow. I think, I think, you know, but I think the church loses something where I do see single men in ministry really thriving. Uh, I see it. Uh, I've seen it with, RUF, Reform University Fellowship, hmm. um, something about campus ministry, um, you know, assuming you've got all the accountability that you need uh, and you have a team you're working with, um, it's, it's really been good. It's worked really well in uh, urban congregations where you have a lot of single adults. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I remember even when I first came to Memorial, uh, there were people who had been members there since the 19. 19- and 1920s who had never married uh, and I, I think it was something about being in a city church it's like the little old lady from Pasadena or something I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know but mm-hmm. um, there were two sisters Jackie and Joella who were very old then and um, and uh, and there were you know, there was just quite a few and and uh, and so I think where I landed was probably providential in the sense that it was one of the churches that actually wouldn't think twice about hiring a single person. Sure. Wow. But you know what I don't have, you know, cause it's also the reality that, that pastors all are unhappy with, but the, the reality that search teams are often looking for a two for one deal <laughs> sure. because sure. you know, it's why it's why yep. married pastors have to ask search teams. What expectations do you have of my wife? Uh, <laughs> It's true. <laughs> to, protect, That's true. to protect her uh, because they're hoping she's going to lead the choir and run the children's ministry and you know, all this stuff. And it's like, and uh, you know, they know a single person isn't going to bring that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a single minister, I am, um, you know, I am available evenings and weekends in ways that um, are a lot harder uh, when you have a family. Sure. Mm. Sure. I, I don't think any married man would, possibly ever deny that or, mm-hmm. or married woman who's mm-hmm. in, who's in ministry. That's right. Not if, not if they're going to stay married. <laughs> <laughs> true. That, that is absolutely true. Uh, Greg, just, I just want our audience to hear a couple of verses from first Corinthians seven, you know, in verse 28, 
Paul says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he seems to be in a con- writing in a context where the Corinthians felt like even getting married if Christ is about to come back would be sinful. He says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And then he adds this, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Um, I think Paul's just being realistic about having a, a good marriage and what it means to be married and to raise children. He's certainly not saying that marriage is bad, but he's being realistic. And then in verse 36, and I'll just read uh, this last paragraph of this section of Scripture, Paul says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And it's I think it's particularly that last line. Mm-hmm. Yep. That Yeah, and that's inerrant and inspired and okay. infallible mm. and and perspicacious and sufficient and uh, <laughs> all these things. You know, I, I think it is uh, I think it is time for a corrective, um, particularly when you consider that um, you know, a large portion of parents are single. Um, and yes. more than half of adults are single. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, the church can't, shouldn't really have a singles ministry. The church needs to be a singles ministry, both of and by single people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want, you know, single people can work in the nursery. Um, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, a single woman can change a diaper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's things that we, uh, you know have to think of but um you know my one of my kind of life verses uh or life chapters is isaiah 56 uh which i I wonder if it's what the african eunuch was had been reading on his way to jerusalem um that before he was turned away um and sent back to 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 africa um it's uh it's where god says um you know let the eunuch not say, I am but a dry branch to the eunuch who, who keeps my Sabbaths and does what pleases me and walks in my covenant. I will give a memorial and a name of Adjushim, a memorial and a name within my house that is greater than many children. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this notion that when um, someone without a spouse or children binds themselves to the Lord, um, that they are given, if they serve God, they are given a name and a memorial within the temple of God that is greater than many sons and daughters. You know, that's that's something to aspire to, um, you know, to, to, to be honored that way by, by God, mm. uh, not as a, a works righteousness thing, but but that um, God honors those who, who serve him and and uh, and he does put the lonely in families. You know, I I have seen um, single people, single adults, brought into the center of a church and brought into the center of the families of our churches. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, I have one family that's pretty much adopted me as their, their extra adult uncle or whatever, mm. where I've been in their home hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, I have refrigerator rights. I don't have to ask permission <laughs> to open their refrigerator. I'm one of the family. That's wonderful. You know, and, and it's just, uh, it's, it's really great. Um, you know, and I have, you know, one elder that I've been meeting with for coffee since 2002 on Thursday mornings for accountability and prayer and encouragement. I've got a, another brother who's a deacon who he and I have gotten together every Thursday night for 15, 16, 17 years. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's not like I'm a guy who sits alone at home all day. Mm. You know, God has given me community that has both breadth and, and depth and, and after 30 years in the same church, I mean, I am known. Everybody knows my strengths. Everybody knows my weaknesses. Mm. You know, I am I am known and loved. And uh, mm. That's such a blessing. Well, Greg, one part um, of your book that I found particularly striking was the section where you um, reminded us that, I'll just read a section of it. In the coming age, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like to read that section um, where where he um, where he talks about uh, marriage in heaven. Um, but anyway, you go on in your book to write to the contrary. Jesus tells us we are all moving towards celibacy. The canonical trajectory is moving away from human sexuality altogether. Uh, I found that really striking and you know very thought provoking. So you know, toward that end, Greg, as we think about. Um, you know, as you've already drawn out a little bit, there, there is, there does seem to be an idolatry of the family in, in many ways in our culture and in the evangelical world. Um, but yet there's, as you already mentioned, there's a sizable group of people who are unmarried or single mothers or, and that can be easy to overlook in a church. Um, so you've 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 mentioned some of the ways that you yourself have found community, and those are so beautiful and so powerful. What do you? What is your word to churches? How how we can care well for those in the church who are single or, or um, yeah find themselves unmarried, and and as you said, maybe that's not in a position of just waiting to be married. Yeah, you know, treat them as people made in God's image who are your sisters or brothers or mothers or fathers in Christ. Mm. You know, mm. that that's, you know, um, get to know people who are unmarried. Don't just think of we're a couple. We want to get together with some people. We'll get together with another couple um, so that it's evenly balanced, two pairs, you sure. know, just, uh, but, but be intentional about including people. And that, that goes with anybody who would tend to end up on the periphery of the church um, by default. Mm. Um, you know, St. Paul talks about taking, you know, those who have special needs and bringing them into the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and don't be afraid to um, put people in leadership if they're known. You know, that's the most important thing. When I was first getting into ministry is um, – I found that my church, they didn't need to know that I'm married. They needed to know that I am known Mm. so that I'm not, there's not some big ticking time bomb that's going to blow up, that I'm not living in some kind of isolated thing. I mean, in fact, it's how the Roman Catholic Church got into so much trouble in the 20th century with, with the abuse situation was in the middle of the 20th century 
they had idolized a notion of a priest. The ideal priest was a priest who didn't really have any friends because all of his time was with God. Mm-hmm. He was a loner. He was a loner, and he didn't mind being moved to a different parish every three years. And you know, that's kind of the same, you know, profile of a predator. They don't let anybody get close to mm-hmm. them or know them. They they like the thought of skipping to a different town every three years to cover sure. their bases. And, uh, it, you know, and it was a very scary thing. Um, you know, single people need to be known mm. at, a, at a very deep level um, in that, you know, what their, their heart is, what their dreams are, what their fears and insecurities, their aspirations. Somebody, if you've got single people in your church, somebody needs to know when their, their plane is landing. Mm. Um, mm. Somebody needs to notice when they're not there for some reason. Um, because if, you know, a family of seven doesn't show up, if you notice Sure. <laughs> sure. That's right. Sure. Because it's, it's a, a big chunk of your attendance that just. <laughs> right. It's a lot quieter all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even as we've been having this conversation, Greg, God has been bringing to mind many single people at our church uh, who are single for different reasons some widows, some. And, and just this call to unfold. Mm hmm. And to to look out um, and and to get past because it is easy to retreat into our large American single family homes mm-hmm. that most people historically didn't have, um, but now that we do have that that is a, a real temptation for the church and I think you have a real word to give the church mm-hmm. about yeah. how we we need to grow and enfold uh, better than we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, most of our children's ministry spaces, we've we've we're a church that frequently moves spaces around as as needs change. You know, we get a whole bumper crop of of like preschoolers, and suddenly we've got to switch some spaces around because you know, and and so. Um, but, but what's interesting is um, somebody pointed this out to me that that over the decades. Our children's ministry spaces have almost always been renovated by single adults in the middle of the night <laughs> because they're the ones who wow. can get off work, grab something to bite, to eat on the way to the church, and then stay for five hours oh, painting, wow. switching out light fixtures. You know, so it's just it's it's been interesting to to just notice that the spaces that are are being used by God to provide instruction to our kids and shape them spiritually, mm. that it, it was primarily the singles in the church who prepared those. And mm. nobody did it intentionally. It's just they were the ones who had the man hours. Yeah. They, they were yeah. available. Mm. And then you look at the research on satellite adults and how important it is for discipleship. Obviously, it's got to start in the home, but I mean, Bets, you know how blessed we are when other adults Absolutely. are pouring into our kids. Absolutely. And, yeah. and we are a family. Greg, I, I just want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for your ministry, um, your testimony uh, that you are living for the glory of Christ. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Betsy. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Intersect, and we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.